This is Reimagine Law, a podcast about legal education and careers to help students navigate their career choices. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Reimagine Law. Now we're starting to look at episodes that cover particular areas of law um, and today Nigel and I have the great pleasure talking about environmental law, um, an area that impacts all of us and that has been in the news um, quite a lot uh, in recent months. Thank you, Fran. And it's a pleasure to be uh, be here today talking about this area of law. It was in the news again this morning. Well, it's in the news every day, isn't it? Both whether the broader broader news, but even in the legal news this morning about um, about some of the different areas of law that different legal practices are focusing on and the environmental aspects of that work. But anyway, we're delighted today uh, to be joined by, by two guests, Flora Curtis, a barrister from Francis Taylor Building, and Camilla Bustos, a professor at Pace University uh, in, in New York. So we're going to have a nice transatlantic conversation here around um, around the whole topic of environmental law. And perhaps just to kick us off, and Flora, I'll come to you first. Would you just like to just say a few introductory words and perhaps say a little bit of what your day is like? So Flora, over to you, if I may, first. Um, thanks, Nigel. So um, that's a good question. I think, to be honest, that the day in the life of an environmental barrister can be quite varied. Um, the type of work I can do, sometimes you might be uh, spending your whole day doing advisory work or preparation, um, drafting documents, and then other days you'll be in the middle of a trial or inquiry or hearing, so you'll be working beginning of the day to the end of the day quite stressed, um, desperately trying to get everything done. But um, yeah, it's, it's a good area of law in that respect because you do have a balance of, of those more intense um, periods of work with um, some more uh, relaxed times rather than always being um, fully on. And, and Flora, just to expand, just before I come to yourself, Camilla, um, and so are many of your days focusing on the environmental aspects or, or is your practice a little bit broader as well? Um, so um, for me, it's mixed because um, the type of environmental work that I do is um, mainly focused on the public law and planning law side of environmental law. Um, so that can include um, high profile work such as um, judicial review challenges to government policy on issues such as climate change. Um, also more specialised technical work on areas such as um, you know, things like fisheries or, or waste management. Um, and then also on the planning side. Um, you do a lot, a lot of work uh, related to the impact of development on the environment and environmental assessment, um, or conversely, development that um, could have a positive environmental impact, such as solar development. Um, but then, as well as that, the more environmentally focused work. So for me, I do um, some pure planning work, which um, can be, you know, development that doesn't really have any significant environmental issues and is more planning focused or broader public law that's not related to planning or the environment. Um, and I think for most environmental law practitioners at the bar, um, the environmental work is is um, supplemented by other types of work. Um, it just depends precisely what area you're in, what that might be. Fantastic. And, and you've just reminded me, Flora, of course, how high profile a lot of this those issues you've just described have been the last six, nine, 12 months, just for example, the water companies in the UK and everything and all of the stuff around the environmental impact of how they manage waste and everything. So yeah, no, fascinating. Thank you very much. And Camilla, if I just come come to yourself now, uh, perhaps just a little, yeah, a little, a little sketch of the type of um, environmental work that you do and, and, and I suppose what led you to this in your interest as well. Thanks, Nigel. Yeah, that's a great question. I'm in the middle of a transition myself, so I'll try to answer a bit of what I've done and what I will be doing now. Um, so uh, 
I graduated from law school two years ago, three years ago, uh, co-founded an organization with some of my peers called Law Students for Climate Accountability in the United States. And essentially what we do is try to um, hold the legal sector accountable for its role in the climate crisis. And we can talk a little bit more what that means um, a little later, but that's what um, I've been working on for the past three years. And I'm now moving away from my role as a co-founder and, and consultant where we actually worked on a report in the UK. The name of the report is the Carbon Circle, uh, which looks at um, some of the main firms that work in the UK and their role um, in the climate crisis. And now I will be, I just started honestly a few weeks ago as a professor at Pace University. University, uh, where I'll be teaching human rights law and climate change and migration, um, along other things. So um, I'm sort of in this transition between advocacy and academia, but I'm really excited about it. Wow, fascinating. And um, and it sounds a great, you know, I had had a quick look at the website of the law school, um, Camilla, as well, and it just looks a really, really interesting, really interesting school in the sense of both the topics that are done, but also in terms of how the education is done there as well. It seems very practical as well and, and help it supporting people in practice. It's very practice oriented, which I love. Um, I, I mean, I, I love the scholarly um, debates as well, but I, I think, you know, we're, we are um, encouraged to train our students to actually go practice law, right? Um, and I will also say that, you know, the PACE takes really seriously uh, its commitment to environmental law generally. So um, a good number probably about half the faculty work in environmental law, which is quite unusual for most law schools, in the, at least in the United States, where you only get one or two faculty. So it's really a hub for, you know, scholarship, um, but also, um, you know, experiential learning and, and engagement on, on real day issues. Camilla, just following up from that, how are you able to, um, or how are you planning to shape your teaching um, to really focus on what you clearly passionately care about with the environmental activism um, parts that uh, of, of your history? I think it would be impossible for it not to affect the way I teach, um, the way I tackle problems. I mean, just on a human rights class, for instance, I will be very interested in the in the topic of, um, you know, global South perspectives and what have critics of the global human rights regime said. Um, and, and, and that comes from my identity as a woman, as an immigrant, uh, as a Colombian. Right. And so all of these things are shaping uh, my 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 scholarship and also my teaching um, in terms of climate in particular. Um, I will be teaching mostly, um, you know, classes related to, to to what I've done before. So one of them will be environmental law, where we'll do a survey of the main statutes in the United States. Um, um, but a lot of it will be obviously will be focused on, on environmental justice and climate justice, which is really what, what's brought me to this work. And so, again, I, I, I will be having this dual hat of, of an academic but not just I don't want to just publish for publishing sake right I want to be working on, on on things that people are reading and they're actually affecting policy or at least getting people to think about different ways um thinking differently about a problem so and there's a big space for law students to get involved in this isn't there you know and lawyers of course absolutely absolutely and I think we're just um, you know, at, at the start of like really a transformation in our in our profession. Um, and I think we've been seeing this in the last few years. But I think 
uh, teachers, advocates, we all play a huge role in, you know, mentoring students and also like validating them, right? I think a lot of this is feeling seen and feeling like your concerns are, are real and that your um, anxiety, your climate anxiety is real and that there's something you can do about it. And I think as, as professors, we have an important role in also making our students feel seen and heard and then support them along their journey, whatever that may be. Fantastic. Um, so Camilla, let's get into it. What is Law Students for Climate Accountability? What does the organisation do? And and obviously you've co-founded it. So why why do you think it's important for our listeners to, to get to know the organisation? So Law Students for Climate Accountability was founded three years ago. Um, it started first at Yale, but we soon became a national organization. And it was mostly founded by students trying to understand our role in the climate crisis and the broader role of the legal industry. We went to law school because we wanted to be, you know, human rights attorneys, climate justice attorneys. And we found ourselves with an institution that it's very hard to change and that hasn't really, I think, began to really look at the role that the profession should have in facing this crisis. And part of it is the role of big law. Um, and a lot of us were disappointed, to be frank, about the way in which, um, you know, our, everyone was telling us to go into big law without any sort of critical reckoning of, of why and the role that the industry plays in, in upholding fossil fuel operations generally. And so because we had a lot of time and we're nerds, we decided to do some research. Um, so we looked at what firms were doing in terms of uh, lobbying, transactional and litigation work on behalf of fossil fuel companies. Um, and from there, we started to realize that as much as they love to pledge, um, you know, carbon, uh, carbon reductions and sustainability operations in-house, there's a huge gap between the rhetoric, um, their green rhetoric and what they're actually doing. And we're part of a broader movement really that pushes for the accountability of the, you know, uh, banks, uh, financial institutions, PR agencies, and we see law firms as another enabler, professional enabler or service lender that is not neutral in this fight and that has a huge role to play. So that's where we started. Um, and what we do is a combination of research and advocacy work, um, really, again, trying to erode the license um, of the fossil fuel companies to, to wreck the planet and, the, and, and to critique and push and ask lawyers, okay, what is our role here? Uh, what are we doing by representing fossil fuel firms? And uh, are we doing enough? And of course, we think we're not, but that's a, <laughs> that's a conversation for another day. So we produce an annual scorecard where we look at each of these categories and then create a composite score that basically compares all of these firms in terms of how much work are they doing for renewable uh, energy versus fossil fuels. And you know, there's a whole section of methodology if you're interested in those details. But the big picture is that Again, law firms are continuing to enable trillions of dollars in transactions for the fossil fuel industry. Um, and all of this is public data. All we're doing is gathering public data on, on what the companies and what firms are doing for the companies and then assessing it and creating a score, um, a scorecard. We also have a pledge for firms that refuse to continue to do fossil fuel work. And if you're interested, there's also on our, web, on our website. And so again, we're trying to build this movement for climate accountability within the legal sector. And in terms of, um, obviously, you're called Law Students for Climate Accountability. What is the call that you're making to law students? What are you particularly asking um, them to think about? 
So we want to empower students uh, to, to use the information in, in a way that that serves them too, right? We understand there's like material constraints, why people go to law firms. There's a huge, at least in the States, a huge debt, which you incur. I know it's a little bit different here with the training contracts, but there's still a, a huge power differential. Um, and we want people who are going to firms to make the best decision. So it, it, we've heard, you know, from people using the scorecard to say, I've only interviewed for this number of firms that have ABCs, or I actually decided not to go to a firm because he had an F over another firm. Um, we've also heard that law firms are including questions in their post-survey um, interviews about the scorecard. Like, did you use the scorecard when you were trying to, to find a, a firm? So again, I don't think all, all firms are incredibly different, right? And some, some I think, really care about climate justice, and I think some of them are just greenwashing. Um, and so we want to empower students, those who want to go to, law, to big law, to have the information they need to make, to make the best decision. Mila, that's really interesting, especially the the point, as, as you say, around how students are using this now. And and you're quite right. I mean, debt is and student debt is a big issue this side of the Atlantic as well. I mean, and, you know, the bottleneck of how you get into the profession and the challenges of how you get from your situation of being in a, in, a, in your law school and then getting the post postgraduate training that, that you need to move towards being a solicitor or barrister is, is still is still challenging. Um, Flora, just to uh, just to come on and think about the organization that you've been involved with, uh, which is called Legal Voices of, of the Future. Would, would you like to just explain a little bit uh, about that? Because again, thinking of students and all of you listening who are students, again, very much about something for the future. So Flora. Yeah, um, so Legal Voices for the Future was launched at the beginning of this year and it was founded by six young women who are early career practitioners in a, um, a wide range of areas of the law. And um, LVS focus is basically education, uh, knowledge sharing, and encouraging our members to um, have conversations with others within the legal profession about the climate and ecological crises in order to um, ensure that those conversations are happening. Um, I think even in the area of law that I work in, which is environmental law, it's, it's like we're all aware of the crises that are happening, but that the impact that it actually has on how people carry out their work sometimes feels um, like it's not as big as it should be. Um, and the, the focus of our work is um, it, it's centered around these knowledge sessions. Um, so the knowledge sessions are run by, they've so far been run by the founding members of LVF, and they essentially are designed to give information to young lawyers about um, different issues related to the um, climate and biodiversity crises. So, for example, we've had sessions on um, the energy transition, and we're having a session soon on climate litigation. We've had sessions on greenwashing as well. So the idea is really to educate people about how um, the climate and ecological crises um, come into very different areas of the law and very different practice areas. Uh, one of the key drivers for setting up LVF was an acknowledgement that despite the importance of these issues and these um, crises that we face, uh, legal education on environmental and climate law um, often doesn't feature very centrally in the degrees that most lawyers will have done. Um, so there's a, a paucity of, of knowledge and education in the legal profession um, at all levels, really, on the scale of these crises and, and how the law can um, be used, if at all, to tackle them. So one of the central um, principles of LBF is trying to address that kind of lack of knowledge that some lawyers have. So interesting because, of course, we've got Camilla talking about how she's going to shape her teaching on the back of um, the work that the LBF are doing. No, that's not, and, and I was just going to—I was just going to say 
Flora, Flora as well. Also, you know, when you just bring up those topics, you can, I think for all of you listening, you can immediately think of things like the greenwashing or, you know, just the climate crisis or the environmental impact of, of various um, corporate actions or policy, government policy or, or whatever it is. You can imagine how that touches, as you say, Flora and Camilla, so many different areas of law. So I, to all of you listening, I, I guess I would I would say, Fran, you know, almost whatever area of law you're interested in or potentially going into, there's there's a big angle here that almost cuts across so many different aspects of, of law in, in so many different ways. And also barrister, solicitor, you know, um, the, the US angle as, as well in terms of all the different practice in, in the US, too. So, yeah, I mean, ab- ab- absolutely fascinating. Flora, if I can ask, barristers are, are, are traditionally bound by by the cab rank rule, which um, for those listeners that don't know what, what that is, that's where you don't get to pick and choose your cases. You take um, within the field of work that you do, you take the case that comes in and, and is allocated to you. How does that work um, for a barrister um, doing environmental law practice? Um, that's a really good question. Um I mean, essentially, it works in the same way as as it works in any other sphere. Um, as an environmental lawyer, you are bound by the cab rank rule. And as Fran said, that means that essentially, if a client comes knocking at your door and says that they want you to do some work and you have the expertise and the experience, uh, the knowledge to do that work, um, you have to say yes. And you can't say no based on a personal disagreement with their cause. In practice, I think in the environmental sphere, what that means Um, is that if you're approached by, for example, an oil or gas company who want to obtain a drilling license or a developer who wants to open, for example, an open cast coal mine, um, you can't say no just because you don't think that they should be doing um, what they want to do. Um, And the principle obviously comes from um, the the idea that everyone should have equal access to legal representation and justice. Um, I think, you know, there there are conversations that are ongoing right now um, within the climate sphere about... um, the application of the cow bank rule, um, how should it apply? Should there be any exceptions? Um, in particular, there's an organization that was recently founded called um, Lawyers Are Responsible, which does uh, work in this area. Um, and I know the Bauer Council working group on climate change are also looking into the cow bank rule. But as it stands, essentially, um, as an environmental lawyer, you have to say yes to the work if you're um, experienced and qualified to do it. Um, and if you break that rule, you could be subject to disciplinary action. So it is obviously difficult because I think a lot of people will come into environmental law because they're quite switched on to the issues such as the climate and biodiversity crises. Um, but then when you're in the job, uh, you have to act for both sides. Fascinating. And obviously a difference there between the barrister profession and the solicitor profession, this split profession that we have here in, in England and Wales that, that um, Camilla, obviously, they, they don't have in the US, um, you know, with the general attorney. In passing there, um, Flora, you mentioned the word skills. And I wanted just to, to think about that for, for a little bit. And I guess always, you know, as a, as a barrister solicitor, um, there are always going to be some some good general sk- skills that apply, whether it's environmental law, or whatever type of law you're doing. But uh, any particular skills you might pick out, do you think um, are particularly useful um, for this for this uh, area of law? Yeah, I think um, for the type of work that I do, certainly something that I've come to realise is that um, beyond those general skills that you need, you also need to be willing and ready to get your head around a lot of um, sometimes quite complex scientific and technical evidence um, (laughs) such that you would then be able to uh, for example cross-examine an expert witness who has worked for decades on a particular um, area of environmental expertise as if you know 
um, as much as they do, which sometimes can be quite difficult. But I think <laughs> um, it's just the perhaps the confidence to <laughs> sometimes blag it a bit and and just come across as though you know what, what you're talking about, even though half the time you might um, not really have any idea. <laughs> Well, and also, I guess that speaks to, as is always the case, you know, it's preparation, isn't it? You know, it's the preparation of the research, as you say, because no doubt they will have published or, you know, you're talking to an expert witness who's, I don't know, might be an expert in drilling or something or in water pollution. And, and you're needing to have a discussion with them or, or ask the relevant good question. Fran, I know you and I have often spoken on the podcast about the skill of asking good questions. So I guess, I guess, Flora, that comes into it again, as you say, being able to look at the evidence and then ask what would be a, a very important question based on that. Yeah, definitely. And and often, um, you if you're if you're doing a case with a lot of expert evidence, you'll also have your own expert um, who can help you with that task and identifying what key issues are. Um, other times, uh, you might be instructed by a group for example a, a local community group or a campaigning group who don't necessarily have the funds to um, employ their own experts so um, in those circumstances you are kind of um, a bit on your own but it can be quite fun if you really get your head into a very specialist area and you do work it out and you do a good job in in your cross-examination and then it's kind of that it's quite exhilarating um, an exhilarating feeling and I can imagine, Flora, as, as, as well, that, that one thing possibly leads to another there as well, in the sense of, you know, if you get into an area and you've read a few detailed reports and, you know, you become known for, for an area that that can, you know, that can lead to people approaching you possibly to do, to do more work as well. Yeah, definitely. I think that definitely um, you can see that in, in the careers of um, some practitioners um, and they'll end up you know publishing specialist books on, you know, how... How do you get planning permission, for example, for a solar farm? Um, I'm definitely not at that stage yet. I'm a bit too junior, but but hopefully, hopefully at some point. Fantastic. And and Camilla, just coming coming across to you, to yourself as well, in terms of skills you feel you've developed as you've as you say, I mean, the organisation you founded and and that that whole um, you know that whole focus you developed there. Any particular skills you think were particularly important over the last few years? I think for anyone who wants to work on, you know, corporate accountability issues or human rights or any or climate justice, you have to have critical thinking skills, right? Because you're confronting an existential crisis where there are different actors that play different roles. And I think there's a piece of it that also requires a little bit of boldness and courage to be able to stand up to power and particularly powerful actors like law firms, right? Or corporations and say, you've not done enough or you've, you've created narratives that have you know, um, misinformed people or you're greenwashing your practices, right? And all of these things are not necessarily easy to do. And so I think it requires a bit of boldness and, and critical thinking to be able to do them. But I think there's a role for everyone in this fight, right? Like there's some of us who are very comfortable doing that because maybe our personality is, is, is a bit like that. Um, there's others who are more comfortable doing the research, which we need. I mean, to Flora's point about doing, you know, being prepared, doing your research, knowing um, when your opponent in some way or opposing counsel, um, you know, we don't do litigation exactly with our work, but a lot of our work is based on research. So we look particularly at what law firms have done to enable 
fossil fuel operations? What have, um, you know, what lobbying work have they done? Transactional work, litigation work. And so if you go to our website, you'll see, you know, this really long methodological explanation and sort of research. We've put together like tons of reports. We're actually releasing today, US Time, our fourth iteration of the scorecard, which essentially gives a score to each law firm um, that we look at, like um, they're called the Vault 100 in the States, um, based on all of this, uh, all of these different um, activities and and you can read more about it but essentially i think uh, there's always a role for for people to work or to, to not only work on what they enjoy but also what they're good at right um but those would be the two for me we, we often uh, for our for our listeners we often uh, think about careers and, and the way they're, they're they're thinking about their careers and decisions they make or might make at various times because that's all still ahead of them for many of the, our listeners um looking back on your career today uh if there was one piece of advice you'd give to your younger self, what would that be? I would hold on to what brought me to law school in the first place. I think it's really easy to forget um, when you're going through the training, <laughs> which can often be, you know, very individualistic, overly competitive space. Um, and I think what kept me going, in addition to my my family and and my community, was really thinking and, and holding on to why I wanted to be a lawyer and how I wanted to leverage the law and for whom. And 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 I, I, I don't think this I don't think everyone listening will be a climate lawyer necessarily, but I I do think we all have some sort of, you know, sensibilities towards towards the, the responsibility and the privilege that it is to be a lawyer. So I would I would uh, tell folks to hold on to to that. And Flora, just to come come across to yourself again, a, a similar question. Again, you know, you've you've seen how your practice developed. You've you've explained with a lot of passion, you know, how, how much you care about all these different areas and how students can can think about these areas too. Again, to your younger self, is is there one um, is there one bit of advice perhaps you you would give? Yeah, I think it's perhaps a little bit related to what Camilla has said, but I would say, um, you know, be more confident, younger me, and don't let imposter syndrome get in the way of um, what you want to do. Um, I think, you know, getting into the legal profession, it can be so competitive that you almost just um, get into this position where you're just happy to accept whatever comes your way. Um, you'll do whatever job anyone asks you to do. And I think it is important, um, as Camilla said, both to remember the reason why you're doing things, but also not to, to let um, competitiveness and comparing yourself to everyone else just um, bog you down so that you'll just essentially become another cog in the, <laughs> the machine of the legal profession. Very good. Yeah, no, fa fantastic. And so hang on to your purpose and be confident, you know, and then I think you gave some great examples for earlier where you were saying about, you know, sort of doing your research on some of these very technical areas. And then, you know, then you can have conversations with with these experts and, um, you know, and, and interact and have impact in, in these areas, too. Um, Wow, well, that's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, Fran, I don't know if you want to just uh, end with any final thoughts. Yeah, do you know what one of my final thoughts was? Um, we've done an episode previously called Legal Ethics Unpacked. And, you know, some of the issues we were talking about, particularly with Flora and the cab rank rule, um, if anyone is interested in, in thinking more about the role of a lawyer and ethics and to what extent ethics can impact and shape um, careers, then I really would um, recommend going and finding that episode 
um, legal ethics unpacked, that was called. Um, Nigel, we're at the point where we come up with two practical actions for our listeners. Um, I've been sitting here having a little think while you asked your last two questions. Um, and the two actions that I would like to set for listeners, uh, one is to read the article or report, sorry, that Camilla mentioned earlier called The Carbon Circle that's available on the website. Um, and we'll put the link to that in the show notes. But that's a really useful um, overview of the situation in the UK. Um, so we'll put that in the show notes. So I'd encourage everyone to read it. It is uh, 36 pages, but I promise you some of that is made up with references and there's pictures. <laughs> so it is not a full 36 page read. It is a very digestible read. And I have enjoyed reading it in a, a relatively short period of time as well. Um, secondly, I'd really encourage listeners um, to go and try one of these knowledge sessions that Flora has, has spoken about um, that are hosted by Legal Voices for the Future. Um, I see uh, online that you can sign up for these by following your social media uh, so um, so try going to one see see if it can influence your impact you um, and, and have a think about how you might like to practice in this area um, if you go into it or indeed how environmental issues might impact if you practice in an area of law that isn't environmental law because I think that's actually the point isn't it here that we need to to weave these issues into the bigger picture and not just have it as a kind of self-contained um, little box. No, absolutely. I, I think as, as we were just saying, Fran, it just cuts across so much. But anyway, wonderful. Great. So there's some actions for, for your listeners, a bit of reading um, and a bit of an opportunity there to attend a session as well. So just remains for me to say, Flora and Camilla, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time um, for preparing to, to come along today and just give us an insight into your your fascinating area of law and all the amazing work you've done you've done already and continue to do as well thank you very much all of you for listening to this episode of reimagine law and we'll tune in again soon thank you